Hello and welcome back to the Wild Brood Podcast. I am your host, PB Crottinger, and today we continue our salmon journey. In the last episode, you learned why salmon are so ingrained in Pacific Northwest culture and why life as we know it depends on the health of the salmon runs. Today, I invite you to join Mitch Cutter from the Idaho Conservation League. My name is Mitch Cutter. I am the Salmon and Steelhead Associate for the Idaho Conservation League based in Boise, Idaho. And I, as we discuss the whole damn problem. Now, before we begin this series, I need you to immediately pull the map of the Pacific Northwest and her rivers. If you don't have access to the internet, run out to the nearest parking lot, find the nearest Subaru, and chances are you'll find a small map of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho lovingly placed in the upper left-hand corner above a Mountains Please sticker. It doesn't matter how you find it, get a map, because trying to visualize the problem without understanding the waterways is a fruitless effort. I'll be posting one in the show notes for each episode. Now, without further ado... Let's dive in. All right, Mitch, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for coming back and talking with me. After talking with you the first time, I did not realize how much research I still had to do. So as we are recording this podcast, explain it to me like I'm five. Pretend I know nothing about salmon, because as it turns out, I know nothing about salmon. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we, are, we are not starting from ground zero, but... I have more questions than what I started out with, so I am so thankful that you are here to explain this to everyone who knows nothing about these amazing species of fish. So before we get started, we really need to start at ground zero. What are the species of salmon in Idaho, and which ones are most endangered? Let's start there. Sure. So Idaho's salmon, there's four species of salmon here in Idaho. Those are coho, sockeye, chinook, and then uh, steelhead, which are not quite a salmon, but they're a kind of trout. They're a salmonid, <laughs> but they're related to salmon. Of those four species, there are three that are still around. Chinook ha- have sort of three different flavors to them, I'll call them. There's spring chinook, summer chinook, and fall chinook, which are named because of when they come back to Idaho. So spring chinook and summer chinook obviously come back in the spring and summer, fall chinook in the fall. Those are all listed under the Endangered Species Act. They're, they're, they're a threatened species under ESA. Sockeye salmon are another species that come back specifically to only two places in Idaho, Redfish Lake and Pettit Lake now. Um, those are both in the Sawtooth Basin near the town of Stanley. They are highly endangered. Um, we're talking double-digit numbers of salmon coming back every single year, at least wild salmon. And then steelhead trout are... Steelhead are basically just an ocean-going form of a rainbow trout. The genetics there are super complex and still not very well understood. You can have two rainbow trout that spawn and create a bunch of steelhead. You can have two steelhead spawn and create a bunch of rainbow trout that don't go to the ocean. Basically, they're they're the same species. They just have a different life history. But it's a Mendelian still, nightmare. Yes, exactly. Um, but still, the <laughs> the the wild steelhead are also listed under ESA and are threatened here in Idaho. And then coho salmon are really interesting. Coho actually went extinct in about 1986, I believe. And nobody really realized it for a few years. They were only declared as extirpated from the state uh, maybe 20 years after that in the mid-2000s. But since then, even after they went extinct, they've actually been reintroduced by efforts of the Nez Perce tribe, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. They basically refused the extinction and started to reintroduce salmon into the Clearwater River, which is close to the their reservation and a few other streams where they used to exist. But essentially the the wild snake river coho population is gone. 
Interesting. Yeah. So just to cover salmon and any anadromous fish sort of life history here in the Northwest, these fish are born in tributary streams and lakes way up in the mountains of Idaho, typically. So we're talking the headwaters of the Salmon River, Redfish Lake and Pettit Lake, like I talked about before, the Clearwater River, which is a little north of the Salmon River, and the main stem Snake River sort of close to Hell's Canyon and the town of Lewiston. Those are the places where these salmon, again, depending on the species, spawn and are born as little juvenile fish, you know, about maybe super tiny when they're born and then going up to three or four inches long. And they spend anywhere from a few months to a couple of years in those tributary, what we call natal habitat, where they're, they basically just get a little bigger, big enough to go downstream. At a certain point, they get the signal that it's time to go downstream and they start swimming down towards the ocean. And they go 900 miles, in some cases, down through eight different dams um, to the Snake River, on the Columbia River, and then gradually out to the Pacific Ocean. Um, and that journey takes anywhere between six and 10 weeks, we'll say. Then they spend, again, sort of depends on the species, anywhere between one and five years out in the ocean. And again, they get that funny signal that tells them to come back to home, to, come, to go back to where they came from. And so they'll sort of stage off of the mouth of the Columbia and then come back into the Columbia Snake River system when the time is right and move their way back up again, 900 miles through eight dams to their headwaters to the exact stream where they came from or the exact lake where they came from. And not even, not even the exact stream, but the exact like 200 foot stretch of that stream, like the exact location where they were born. How did they know how to do that? Does science know? You know, there's a lot of different thoughts about how fish actually know how to do that. One idea is that they're basing it off of the magnetosphere, that they have some sort of literal internal compass in their head that can actually work kind of as a GPS and direct them to exactly where they came from. The other idea that I think is a little more plausible is about water chemistry and sort of smelling their way back home. So different compounds that get released into the water, they can detect those somehow. Um, and we're talking really small parts of the water system still. So it's, it's still amazing. But yeah. I think, and many others think that that's how they're able to get back to their specific spot where they were born. And then part of it is, I'm sure, just memory as well. You know, even when you're back in say, the East Fork of the Salmon River, knowing exactly what part of the East Fork you came from is based on memory, I would suspect. So um, it is nothing short of amazing. And they do this every single year, which is <laughs> a pretty remarkable thing that we have going on here in, in the Northwest still, despite some of the difficulties that are posed to these fish. Anyways, they get back to their natal habitat. Two of them pair up. The female will dig what's called a red, R-E-D-D, red. That's a nest for salmon eggs. She'll lay her eggs there. The male salmon will come along and fertilize them. And then both of them will, will die because they've sort of done their job and spawned the next generation. The only exception to that is steelhead. Steelhead actually have the ability to do that journey two or even three times. So uh, male and female steelhead will build their red, lay their eggs, and then they very well could go right back out to the ocean and spend another year there and then make their way back the very next year and become even even bigger when they come back the next time. And then, like I said, they can do that even a third time as well. So like I said, steelhead genetics are, are amazing and still not very well understood. And steelhead are, are really cool fish. But nonetheless, they are endangered like the rest of them here in Idaho. Yeah, that is incredible. So if we're looking at uh, historic return rates, so I know that this is very species specific and very specific to the areas where they're coming back to spawn. But before the, the dams, which we're going to talk about, were in place, what were the historic return rates? 
That's a, that's a super fair question. And I think it gets at something that's really important to consider when you think about salmon and any anadromous fish, which is these fish have very complex and long lifespans, right? And there's a lot of things that affect fish in this journey and frankly, that kill fish in this journey, right? And so even in healthy times, even in the best of ocean conditions and river conditions, when there's, it's all good for migrating salmon, you have maybe 10 or 12% of the fish that go out into the ocean actually coming back as adults, right? Wow. Um, we're still, you know, we're only talking about one in 10 fish actually making that whole successful journey over three or four years. And that may seem like a low number, but these fish lay so many eggs and there's so many smolts that are growing up in these rivers and, you know, our streams are so productive that even that, what seems like really low fraction was still bringing back upwards of 16 million fish back into the Columbia River Basin every single year. Um, And that's a low estimate. some tribal, some tribal fish biologists think that there were 40 million or even 50 million fish coming back every single year. And that's across all species. Um, but that is the bounty that used to exist. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the ideal is 10 to 12%, right? Um, okay. And that's awesome. We would love to see that again. But the reality is in the system that we live in now, we're talking about returns of less than 1%, which, you know, again, seems pretty small, <laughs> Um, yeah. But that's actually not, that's so small that it's not sustainable anymore. And so that's why we sort of have yeah. the problems that we have today. Right before this interview, I was reading about Redfish Lake um, and how the past few years there have been zero returns of the sockeye, just straight up zero to a, a lake that got its name because of the red fish. So that's mm-hmm. um, tragic, really. And I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this uh, podcast series, because you see in Windows Save the Salmon, and then if you don't know anything about salmon, you're like, okay, why salmon? That's what we're yeah. going to explore. We really need to talk about the dams. And after talking with you before I sat down and I, I wrote the, these episodes, it really seemed like, especially for the Pacific Northwest, everything centers around these eight dams on the Columbia River, specifically the lower four dams. And I know where we're at as a society, like we really need clean, renewable energy and hydroelectric power is technically that. But we're looking at like at what cost. So let's talk about these lower four dams. Sure. So the, the four dams that we're talking about specifically are four dams on the lower Snake River in Southeast Washington. And that is Ice Harbor Dam, Lower Monumental Dam, Little Goose Dam, and uh, Lower Granite Dam. Those four are all federally owned dams that are owned and operated by the United States Army Corps of Engineers, which is a Department of Defense agency, as it might sound. And they produce some things. Um, They are useful. They were built for a reason, right? They produce about 4% of the region's total energy production, and they create a navigational waterway or a channel for barges that can take goods all the way up to Lewiston, Idaho, and all the way out to the Pacific from Lewiston, and making Lewiston, Idaho's only seaport, quote unquote. And that's, that's a use, that's a useful thing, right? We're not, nobody says that that's not useful, but what these dams also do is they're an added burden on specifically Idaho's wild salmon and steelhead. Many other fish here in the Northwest have to pass by dams to get back to their natal habitat and to get out to the ocean. Typically those fish have to pass by anywhere between three and five dams. And 
if we look at the number of fish that are returning in those populations, the return rates we were just talking about, they're about three or four, maybe 5% in good years. And that is high enough where that's high enough where those populations are stable at least, and maybe even growing in some cases and getting out from these Endangered Species Act protections that they're currently under. Whereas, like I just said, because of the presence of these four additional dams, snake river fish have to deal with you know, double the number of dams and thus you know less than 1% returns, which is not sustainable, not stable, uh, certainly, and is actually decreasing the populations of these fish even beyond the endangered species sort of status that they have right now. Got it. Given the biology of salmon, what is it about these dams or the number of dams that the Idaho salmon are having to pass that makes them so detrimental to them getting to their spawning? So I think a common misconception on this subject is that it's the upstream passage that's actually the problem for fish. Mm -hmm. um, all these dams are equipped with fish ladders, quote unquote, so that adult salmon can actually get back over the dam. Think of it as like sort of a stairway over the top of the dam where the salmon can jump from step to step to step and make their way over. Those ladders are actually fairly effective after some decades of trying to perfect the technology. The real problem for salmon and dams comes on the juvenile end, the fish that are going downstream. You have all these little tiny salmon that are, you know, four to five inches long at that point going downstream and they get faced with this concrete wall that's in their that's in their way. And they have basically three ways of passing through that structure. They can go over the top, um, which is called the spillway. And that's actually somewhat effective, but you can imagine the, the sensation of being tossed over a hundred foot concrete wall eight times <laughs> and how that might affect your migration, especially if you're, especially if you're five inches long. Um, oh, no, it's not awesome. <laughs> But it's better than the alternatives. The alternatives are A, going through the turbines themselves. And you can imagine what a, a hydroelectric turbine that looks strangely like a blender would do to a juvenile salmon. Um, or they can go through what's called the juvenile bypass system, which is essentially just a pipe over the dam. The problem with the juvenile bypass system is that many of those fish end up getting put on barges to be barged downriver so they don't face any of those dams. But the problem when you put a fish on a barge is that they don't remember the journey that they've made. They don't remember how to get home. And so when they come back as adults, they're not able to actually make their way back to the natal habitat. They stray and they're not as sort of fit as many of the relatives that migrated in the stream, I guess I would say. The other impact that these dams have, besides sort of the direct mortality they have on juveniles, is creating these big stagnant reservoirs behind them that don't look like a river at all, right? Before the dams got put in, these fish would, would go downstream and they would actually get pushed by the current downstream. They wouldn't have to swim really at all. They would actually migrate tail first the whole way because they didn't have to swim forward at all. And they just needed to sort of swim out of the direction of any obstacles or anything that was coming up in their way. Now, because of the presence of these dams, these fish have to actually expend energy to make this journey. And that energy gets put into swimming and means that they have to escape things like predators and also deal with warm water temperatures behind these dams. And so as both juveniles and especially as adults, sockeye really struggle with some of those hot water temperatures. Anything above about 68 degrees Fahrenheit is fatal to them. They'll stop moving wow. and, they'll, and they'll perish if they last, if they're in that kind of water for long enough. So a couple of times in the last 10 years, the state of Idaho and the federal government have actively trucked a lot of sockeye from Lower Granite Dam, um, which is the last dam, the furthest upstream of these dams that we're talking about, all the way back to Redfish Lake to get them out of that out of that reservoir and out of that hot water. And that's the only reason that we've had any sockeye 
coming back to Idaho, even if they didn't actually make it all the way themselves. Are we seeing any like evolutionary changes or behaviors in these salmon or are they still being run basically by um, ancestral instinct? I think the main evolutionary, or I guess I'll call it genetic change that we're seeing, because it's not about evolution. It's more about sort of artificial selection and how we are impacting these populations is that these salmon runs used to have a huge amount of genetic diversity and that diversity expressed itself as when these fish came back, when they left, um, how they migrated, what time of day they migrated, um, what sort of traits did they have to escape different kinds of predators, um, all these sorts of things. That is That kind of diversity and that resilience is what makes these populations so strong and what allowed them to keep making this migration year after year after year for literally thousands of years back into these rivers, um, despite all kinds of natural disasters, whether it's wildfire or volcanic eruptions or earthquakes um, or landslides or what have you. But now, because we run this system in such an artificial way where we have April 1st comes along every year, and that's when fish spill season starts. And that's when salmon start being able to survive a little better than they did any of the days before that. And then August 1st comes along, and that's the end of fish spill season. And so any salmon that pass by after that are probably more likely to die than fish that migrated before that. We have all these schedules. And so we're sort of, we're getting rid of all the diversity sort of either end of the spectrum and just focusing on these fish in the middle. Not only that, but we're also sort of factoring in hatchery fish into this as well, where we have relatively little genetic diversity in hatchery populations. And those fish have at times interbred with wild fish. And so you have this sort of clonal population of salmon where every fish is basically the same. They're all related to each other more than they have been ever before. And so that's where we get worried about some of those natural disasters. Again, wildfires, volcanic eruptions, heat waves are becoming more and more common really killing all of the few remaining fish that are left. You know, you have all the Snake River sockeye that are going to come back, coming back through a certain stretch of river in basically about a three-day period. (laughs) And if you have a heat wave in that stretch of river at exactly that period of time, then it's not going to be very good for those returning sockeye. So if you had to put like a percentage, you know, you have climate change, warming, pollution, blah, 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 dams. What percentage of the problem is the dams? Has there been a statistical study on that or you can also spitball? Yeah. I mean, there's been a number of studies on like the relative significance of different factors in salmon migration. Um, and I, there's a few others I would toss in there too. There's harvest, there's predation, there's the hatchery genetics that sort of continue to impact wild fish populations. I think, you know, all those things are relevant, but there's only so many of those things that we can control. So mm-hmm. climate change is obviously a big factor. It's impacting all fish and wildlife species across the globe. Mm-hmm. But there is only so much that we in the, nor- in the Pacific Northwest and specifically in the Snake River Basin can do to impact or change uh, the trajectory of climate change, mm-hmm. right? What we can do is prepare our fish for those impacts as best as we can by changing what we can. We can't change ocean conditions. We can't change heat waves necessarily. And what we can do is change the river system, the freshwater system, so that it's as good as possible for these salmon and steelhead that are migrating through it. By doing that, we sort of improve their passage out to the ocean. We get rid of some of the predators that are eating them along the way. We continue to improve habitat here in Idaho as much as possible by doing some habitat restoration, some river restoration, making sure that there's enough water in the streams for these fish to spawn and migrate through. We continue to control harvest um, both in the ocean and at the mouth of the Columbia. 
so that these wild fish are making their way safely back to Idaho. And we continue to use hatcheries as we need to, but hopefully not let those fish interact too much with wild fish so that we maintain that genetic diversity, right? This is, right. these are all, this is sort of a, it's a broad strategy for salmon recovery, but it has this foundational cornerstone of dam breaching and reducing the impacts right. of the hydro system on salmon and steelhead as they migrate through. There's a lot of other things that we need to do, but none of those things will be successful. None of them have been successful without dam breaching. That is a way to unlock the potential of so much of the work that we're going to do and so much of the work that already has been done. And I think that's that's notable. We've spent billions of dollars on this system on trying to bring salmon back and they haven't come back. They haven't responded. We have not had the results that we wanted to have when we first started making these investments. So let's you know, follow bad money with good, I suppose, <laughs> and unlock <Yeah. laughs> the, unlock the potential of everything that we've just done. Um, because otherwise, otherwise, we're not going to see any results from it. I agree with you. Um, I think what is it like? Something like eight billion dollars have been spent to try to bring the salmon back, and it's just it hasn't. Oh, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'll correct your figure because it's even higher. Um, we've spent twenty we've spent twenty six billion dollars on oh. salmon and steelhead recovery in the Northwest. If you adjust for Holy inflation, smokes. Um, it is the single most expensive fish or wildlife recovery program in history. Something like you know, uh, we have people all across the Northwest who are members of these electric utilities that take power from these dams, right? And because of that they pay some of the costs for the fish and wildlife recovery programs that are based on these right. dams. So something like 25 or even 30% of their monthly bill is going into this program that has not worked. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. And it doesn't see, it seems like the dams are more expensive if you put it in that light. Yeah. I mean, what we're dealing with is similar to the fossil fuel industry. We're dealing with an externality, right? right? Like this yeah. is, this is an effect of the system that, is not properly accounted for by people who pay for it. And so yeah. we have all of this bounty, this wealth that I was talking about before that's been made into a different kind of wealth and not replaced. Right. That is the picture that we're looking at. Do we really need them? Because I know 4% is, that's, it is a significant amount of energy for that region. And I, I do understand that the system of moving agricultural products to Lewiston, but is there an easier and more efficient way to do that? Are they really necessary? I think it's best to think about it in terms of what are, whether there's other options or not, right? Okay. Um, and I think for energy, for irrigation, for transportation, we can do all those things in different ways. We do those things in different ways in many other places around the world. There are many parts of the world that don't have hydroelectric dams. There are many parts of the world that use trains for shipping instead. And there are many parts of the world that don't have reservoirs that provide irrigation water. There is nothing to replace a river for salmon. Mm -hmm. um, Right. We have tried that. We have tried barging. We have tried trucking. There have even been such ideas as building another artificial channel for the salmon next to the river, as if that's not completely backwards from how it probably should be and wouldn't be super expensive. The point is, is that yeah. there are other ways to do this and there are ways to make it so that the fish aren't losing out of this system, because that's really what this is all about, is we have taken the wealth of these rivers here in the Northwest that is salmon and turned it into a different kind of wealth that benefits only certain people. And that has left tribes and other river communities and anybody else who likes salmon sort of as a loser in this whole system. And so... In my job and with a lot of the groups that I work with, we think a lot about what are the best ways to replace some of those benefits. So mm -hmm. to maybe get to your question, 
of course, there are other ways to generate power. We're doing that over and over and over again by replacing, say, coal-fired power plants with renewables instead. And the same can be said for natural gas plants, um, other dams that have been breached, and even nuclear plants that are starting to retire. Uh, we've done that over and over. And that is sort of part of a broader energy landscape change that's happening right now as we go to sort of address the impacts of climate change and move away from fossil fuel resources. When it comes to navigation, you know, we just talked about trains. There's trains everywhere. And before these dams got put in, farms that were in the region used trains to ship their goods to market. And those train tracks are still there. And in many cases, they need some repairs. Maybe they need some improvements and some expansions. But um, the infrastructure is there. And it's not as if we can't go back to it. And then irrigation is really as simple as we have all these sort of, I'll call them drinking straws that are in in the reservoirs right now. Um, and those reservoirs would lower into a river if we took these dams out. So it's just a matter of extending those drinking straws a little further. The point is, is that there are other ways of making this happen. All it takes is imagination and investment, basically, in a, in a better future for salmon, certainly, but I think also for anybody who depends on this river system as it is right now. For sure. And I know that the tides are kind of turning in favor of tearing down these dams. I know that there's still some politicians that are like, okay, wait, we need to really weigh the pros and cons of this. But assuming that you get the green light, the go ahead to tear the dams down. They're, they've been there for a long, long time. What are the risks of dismantling these dams? Are there environmental concerns? I know that this is not cheap. Tearing down dams is very expensive. I, I do know that. But I can only imagine like you have, well, they were built in the 50s, I think. So, you know, 70 years of agricultural runoff and other sediment that's got to be there. How do you mitigate these problems with tearing dams down? Yeah, I think the main, you sort of just got at the main concern that most people think of, which is sediment and sort of agricultural runoff that might be trapped behind these dams. We have kind of two things going in our direction on, on that front. One is that these dams are what's called run-of-river dams. There are sort of two types of dams, run-of-river dams and storage dams. Run-of-river dams basically just pass all the water that comes into the reservoir right back out immediately. So while there's a reservoir, they're not storing massive amounts of water. This isn't like Hoover Dam and Lake Mead um, or Grand Coulee Dam and Lake Roosevelt, which is up in north central Washington. We're talking about dams that store, you know, a couple hours to a couple of days worth of water flow behind them, basically. And so, you know, water is still flowing. And so there's not as much sediment dropping out into the reservoirs as there would be in a place like Grand Coulee. The other thing that we have going for us is that even before these dams were put in, there were dams built further upstream on the Snake River. And so that's the Hell's, Can the Hell's Canyon complex, which is in Hell's Canyon, obviously, but then other dams all across sort of southern Idaho in what we call the Mid-Snake River. Southern Idaho is a pretty well known and, and massive agricultural sort of complex. Um, there's lots mm -hmm. of cattle feeding operations and other sort of farm, op farm operations there. And those, those deposit a lot of contaminants, fertilizer, and other nasty things into the Mid-Snake River, which ICL works on separately from this issue. But the point of all of that is that the, those toxics sort of get caught behind those other dams, and especially behind Brownlee Dam, which is one of those Hell's Canyon dams I was talking about. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that sediment is basically further upstream and hasn't actually reached the, the lower Snake River and is not trapped okay. behind any of these dams. Now, does that mean that there's no sediment problem to solve? Of course not. There is absolutely some sediment to be dredged. 
we need to remove as much of that sediment beforehand as we can so that there's not this massive plume that's going down into the next reservoir and out into the Columbia um, when these dams are breached. But I think the Army Corps of Engineers has done a lot of work on how to do that and the relevant political leaders who've sort of dug into this, whether it's Congressman Simpson here in Idaho or Patty Murray and Jay Inslee in Washington have all sort of looked at that problem as well. Got it. Okay. Wheeling back just a little bit, we're going to go to the Salmon River, which obviously gets its name from the salmon. I want to talk a little bit about the sockeye, given that they are like so critically endangered, it is unreal how endangered they are. I read that they are the one, they have, is it the, they go the farthest in Idaho or are they the farthest in the world, their migration pattern? Idaho's sockeye salmon have the, you know, I think there's another population of sockeye in Alaska that beats them for distance. But in terms of elevation, they have the highest migration in the world. These fish are going, Redfish Lake is at something like 6,000 feet. So these fish are going 900 miles and 6,000 feet up in elevation during the course of their migration. And they don't eat or do anything on their way to the spawning grounds, do they? No. So so when any of these salmon or steelheads start coming back for spawning, they don't eat anything when they come back into the river. Yeah, energy expenditure over dams and then getting doing like the world's longest uh, butt exercise. They had butts. Uh, high elevation. <laughs> so tell me the story of Lonesome Larry. Sure. So I may get the years a little mixed up here. So I, I apologize for that in the timeline. Okay. Uh, I think in 1991, there were four sockeye that came back to, uh, to Redfish Lake and to the Sawtooth Basin. And that, after a few years of similar, really bad returns, um, prompted the Shoshone-Bannock tribes in East Idaho to petition for sockeye to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. And that was the first of any of the salmon or steelhead runs in the Northwest that had been listed under ESA. Um, So their petition was successful and it led to something like 13 other Columbia or Snake River Basin salmon and steelhead runs also being listed over the ensuing, call it 10 years. Um, But it proved to be really prescient because the next year, only one male came back, um, and that is the famous Lonesome Larry. Lonesome Larry was the only sockeye that came back, and he came back to Redfish Lake and tried to spawn, and there weren't any females to spawn with. And so they, cap- they captured him and sort of preserved his genetics. And then over the next few years, they captured some other sockeye. But like you said before, there were years with zero sockeye coming back. So this was kind of a multi-year program t- trying to preserve all of the gen- genetics that they could. Basically, what they did is they took all the wild sockeye that were left and put them into what's called a captive broodstock program. So they put all these fish into a hatchery and let them interbreed with each other to keep making sockeye. And they did that a couple of times in this hatchery environment so that the fish were all kept safe from this migration. um, And they kept breeding them until they had, you know, a few hundred fish to a few thousand juvenile fish to put out one year. And then they slowly started to release those fish back into the wild, into Redfish Lake, and then in a parallel process at Pettit Lake, which is just upstream, um, and started putting these fish back into the wild and letting them sort of do this migration while still keeping a bunch of fish in this captive broodstock program so that if anything happened to the fish that were out in the wild, they always had this genetic reservoir to resort back to um, and to really as a, as a bulwark against extinction. Because as long as you have those wild fish genetics, you still have Snake River sockeye somewhere in the world, even if they're not in the actual wild environment. And so over the last 20 years, say, since that program really got going, we've seen sockeye 
come back, kind of. We've seen a lot of work in the Sawtooth Basin at both Redfish and Pettit Lake trying to improve habitat, trying to remove blockages to some of the sort of smaller streams up there, um, and to make these lakes sort of as good as they can be for salmon, for sockeye salmon. And do, do we have more than zero fish in the wild? Absolutely we do. And so for that reason, the program can't be considered anything other than a success. It's a miracle that we still have these fish. But at the same time, we had four wild fish come back in 1991, and we had four wild fish come back last year too. <laughs> Only four. Ooh, that's... Yeah, so four, four wild fish actually made the whole journey back to Idaho, swimming the full 900 miles. Some fish, some more fish got trucked, like I was talking about before, yeah. around sort of the hot water. And then, of course, we had some hatchery fish come back as well. Sort of the wild and hatchery fish with sockeye are all kind of mixed in with each other. But the point is, is that, you know, while we're greater than zero in terms of the number of sockeye salmon, we haven't actually made that many gains from the four that came back in 1992. It's a miracle, but we've done sort of as much as we can here in Idaho. And right. if you ask any tribal fish biologist for the Shoshone-Bannock tribes or, you know, several folks for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game, they'll say more needs to happen outside of Idaho. Um, and right. to us, that means we need to reduce mortality and allow more fish to survive this journey that they make, which means we need to bre breach the four lower Snake River dams. That's when we'll actually start to see progress towards the goals that we've set. Because, you know, while everybody can be happy that there were, you know, there might have been 50 wild fish that came back to Redfish Lake this year. It was a pretty good year, all in all, for salmon migration. The goal is 9,000 wild fish. Right. We are, a, we are a long way away from 9,000 wild fish. And I don't think that even the best of ocean conditions, even the best of river migration conditions, as long as there's eight dams still there, we're not going to achieve that goal. So going forward, I just, I got to ask a simple question. And this sure. is like, I know this is your life's passion. Um, you at ICL and your teammates do such amazing work. Are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am. Um, Love that. Okay. And I draw that from, I mean, just to, to fully flesh out the answer to your question. Um, I draw that from two different places. One mm -hmm. is sort of the political wins right now. I think mm -hmm. we have some really amazing champions for salmon on this issue. We have Congressman Simpson, a Republican here from Idaho, who has seen the needs of his district and the needs of the people who he traditionally sort of fights for, which is agriculture, and sees that the only resolution to this big problem, this ongoing decades-long problem for the region, is legislation and massive investment in things to replace the dams and make sure that these fish actually survive. Otherwise, we are going to continue having the legal battles that he really hates and sort of get to a solution that won't be acceptable to anyone because right. salmon might just go extinct and people are going to have to keep paying for their recovery through that extinction. Um, and that's that's not good for anybody in the Northwest, right? Yeah, so at his the tune of 26 billion and counting. Yeah, uh, his leadership is pretty exciting. Um, it, yeah. If you had asked anyone 20 years ago that Mike Simpson, you know, who was going to be the salmon champion on this issue, nobody would have said Mike Simpson. And which makes it all the more exciting that he has been shown, you know, what's really necessary here and that he's right. not just you know, willing to accept that, but that he's actually ardently advocating for it. Yes. And so we're a big fan of his Columbia Basin Initiative proposal that he put out in 
February of last year, I believe. Um, and I read it. It was really good. I was not expecting that from an Idaho Republican. I'm not, yeah. not going to lie. Because we're excited about our Governor Kate Brown in Oregon, um, who, is, mm-hmm. who is outgoing as of this moment. But she has been a strong advocate for salmon and steelhead and dam breaching in the past, as well as Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray up in Washington, who I think sort of did their own homework on what these dams mm-hmm. provide and how those services might be replaced. And came away with the conclusion that extinction is unacceptable um, and yeah. that there is no reason that we need to have this sort of dichotomy of energy or salmon. That is not a choice that we actually face. We can replace everything these dams do and that we can have both the clean energy that the region needs and also abundant salmon population. So that kind of leadership is exciting as well as sort of the strong statements that we're seeing out of folks in the Biden-Harris administration right now talking about the how the status quo, how what we've been doing for 20 years is not working anymore, and that we really need sort of new ideas and creative solutions for how to move this issue forward here in the Northwest. That's part of what gives me hope. The other part is the fish themselves, honestly. Um, the resilience that these fish have shown over more than 100 years of dealing with all kinds of problems, extinction level events that have been presented to them that they have survived nonetheless. You know, there were times where people were completely over harvesting fish at the mouth of the Columbia, taking out millions and millions of pounds for canning operations. The fish survived those. There were times when dams were getting built without fish passage or with terrible fish passage back in the 30s that didn't actually work all that well. And the fish survived that as well. Um, That's a good point. There's all kinds of toxic pollutants being dumped into rivers. Um, Rivers have been overheated. There's all kinds of pressures that these fish face every single day, and they have been able to make their way through those. Now, does that mean that they're not in danger? Of course not. They're 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 highly endangered um, and a threat of extinction, and we need to do everything we can for them now. But mm-hmm. give these fish half a chance, and they will take advantage of it. And that's really all we're trying to do is give them half a chance. Going back to you know talking about climate change, sort of the the game with species protection and climate change is that we want to shove as many species through a very, through a quickly closing door as fast as we can, right? Because climate change is going to, going to result in some extinction. We're not going to get around that, but if we can shove these fish through the door and make them as resilient as we possibly can so that they can withstand the effects of climate change, that's a success. And if we're not willing to do that, then why are we fighting climate change? If we're not willing to go out and protect a bunch of endangered species, then what is all this for? Yeah, right, right. And so if the average lay person wants to give these salmon half a chance, how or how, how can people get involved? The easiest way to do that is definitely to connect with our organization, which, you know, I, I support our work, obviously. Um, I think we, we do good stuff at idahoconservation.org and sign up to be a member or an advocate of ours, and we will send you all of sort of the, the politically appropriate like ways to have a big impact at certain at specific times. Um, the other, you know, if you don't want to connect with an organization and you want to do your own thing, the other best ways are speaking to your local congressman, um, the person who ostensibly represents you, and talking to them about why salmon matter so much to you um, and why you think they deserve half a chance at being saved. Um, uh, the other way is if you feel like you've learned something from this podcast or from anything else that you sort of read about or hear about on this subject, share it. We ha- we face a real issue in the Northwest, especially with so many people moving to Idaho, to Oregon, to Washington, 
and especially to places where there aren't salmon anymore, but there were once, like Boise being, being a main one that I think of. They don't know that these fish even exist in our state, right? Because right. what was once so commonplace, what was once like a real bounty here in Idaho is now like a rarity, right? It's sort of like, a, oh, that's weird. I saw a salmon. And that's just not how it was ever meant to be. That's not how it should be. Mm -hmm. And so sharing that story, sharing sort of what these fish represent is really important as sort of showing people why this should matter to them. And so spreading that around as much as possible is really key to building a movement of people, building a group of people who care about salmon and steelhead, because that's really what it's going to take to move this issue along, is a core group of Northwesterners saying, we want our fish back. And if you do want your fish back, please check out the Idaho Conservation League at idahoconservation.org, where you can find plenty of calls to action to participate in. Or if you aren't in Idaho, do a Google search of your state. You may be surprised to find that you either have a current salmon run or had a salmon run at one point. A major thank you again to Mitch Cutter, not only for participating in this series, but for being a humongous help and resource for following episodes. Without him, this series would have taken forever to complete. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Wild Brood's conservation mission, please visit www.wildbrood.art, where you can find a plethora of cranky coffee animals for purchase. This year, 100% of all profits from the Wild Brood Art Division are going straight to the Roatan Marine Park in support of their coral restoration efforts. Stay tuned for my next episode, where I sit down with the Idaho Fishing Game and we talk about salmon hatcheries. Until then, take care and see you next week.